All right, let's get started, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for coming today. Um, I'm going to record again. Did anybody try listening to the podcasts? Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, great. It's not the best quality. Obviously, it's better quality if I record it um, without being in this big room and walking around. But yeah, it should be helpful. I got an email from um, Dean uh, Grant uh, saying, reminding me, I think in particular, maybe other uh, adjunct faculty as well, that while it's great to make things available um, that would enable out-of-class learning, this is to be in class and um, you're not supposed to not come because of things like the podcasts are available. And if you're going to be missing, I think there's a policy, I'm not entirely clear on the numbers, but if you're going to miss some number of classes because of a medical issue, you are supposed to let the university know. Um, I'm not the person to ask about the details of that policy, but if you do have to miss a bunch, um, you know, look into that, make sure you're doing it properly. And certainly, you know, everybody came today, it's wonderful to see you. And uh, I do want you to not come if you're sick, obviously, and I want you to have the ability to use this to study, but I don't want to run afoul of the university's rules, and certainly being in class is, is inherently valuable for a bunch of reasons. And I know that from a year of teaching not in class, and many of you know that from maybe having the entirety of your law school career until this semester being not in class. So. That's the podcast. Those will be going up, you know, shortly after every class. Um, is there any developments on the book front? Has anybody been able to get books who didn't get one previously? Yeah, there's some nodding. Yeah. Okay. Is anybody still missing the book? Okay, a couple people. Um, so, were you able to get it from the bookstore or from the online? I got it online. Online. Yeah. Okay, oh well that's good. So the back order should be resolved. So if you haven't ordered online, I would. Um, and so if anybody really needs me to scan, again, I will. That was a giant pain, like it was very slow and tedious. I listened to a good podcast for an hour and did it. But um, I will be willing to do it again. Uh, let me know. But if it is possible to get the book, that would be you know, obviously ideal. We have no readings from the book for Friday. We do have a chapter for Wednesday. I think it's a bit shorter than this last chapter. Um, but anyways, there we are. Um, final sort of administrative thing. I am going to be um, setting the uh, optional written assignment soon. So you can have um, the knowledge as to what that will be and a chance to get ahead of it if you want to get a jump on it. That said, I think the subject matter, which again will be to write an intervener factum, a 10-page factum, um, arguing for reform of one area of administrative law, it may be easier to understand where you want to go with that a little bit later in the course with more we study. But you may think, I, I really know where I want to go. So I will give more detail on that, certainly by next Wednesday. Any questions about administrative stuff, books, or podcasts, or anything like that? Um, and you're able to find the lecture notes from last class. You see that folder? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, any questions that come up on that sort of a thing, feel free to raise them, you know, at the beginning of class or email me or anytime. 
So let's talk today about a rather theoretical idea, the rule of law. We've been touching on it in the last two classes. Today we're really going to delve into it and we're really going to delve into it on a theoretical level. I'm going to try to sort of anticipate where we're going with the practical application of the rule of law, but we are going to stay pretty deeply in theory today. Next class, we're going to read four cases which each um, show an element of how the rule of law as a concept is applied in practice. So that's the broad structure of this week. I want you to get the concept, get that there's a big debate around what the concept means, get that different people try to effectively claim the rule of law for themselves. I mean, it's, it's a rare case, honestly, where you won't find advocates on both sides of an issue, both saying the rule of law demands that I win. So I want you to understand the, the concept as well as the flexibility and how it has different components which can come into conflict and how it has different meanings for different people. And then next class we'll see the application of it. And I hope that by doing this at the outset I don't lose you too much by staying in the theory before we get practical. And we will get very practical. But my hope is that by having these big ideas in your head at the beginning, the practical will land within a kind of coherent mental framework. So that's the sort of pedagogical philosophy that I'm trying to bring to this um, structuring of the course, just to let you know. So what is the rule of law on a fundamental level, the, the concept has been articulated as where laws, not men, rule. Leaving aside the, you know, obviously, sexist framing of that conception, the idea is that you have two options. You have rule by individuals and their whims and their ideas and their goals and their prejudices and their whatever else you may have whatever else every individual has, any leader has, or you have something that's concrete and abstract and separate from those individual whims and you know, whatever else people bring, and that is this idea of law. Law rules, not men rule. And I want to get into, well, you know, how much can you divorce the law from the people who interpret and apply it? So I want you to have as a question in your minds how real of a distinction is there between law ruling and the people who interpret and apply the law ruling? What's, what's the difference? Is there a meaningful distinction? The overarching project of this lecture, I think is well set out on page 153 of our book. And what the author, I think it's, this chapter is by, um, who's it by? Somebody at UBC, right? Yeah, Mary Liston, that's right, exactly. Right, um, wonderful person, wonderful professor. And the way Mary articulates it is to say, um, you know, we must recognize the importance of acknowledging disagreements about the meaning of the rule of law, because that in turn affects how we understand legal arguments and judicial interpretation. So you need to grasp this to grasp the arguments, 
and how the judges apply the, the concept. And I think uh, the, she, she calls upon a, a quote from Justice Major in the Imperial Tobacco case, which I just love, where Justice Major says, well, advocates tend to read into the principle of the rule of law anything which supports their particular view of what the law should be. And I think that's absolutely true. I think in almost any case that I've ever argued, I've convinced myself that I'm on the right side for the rule of law. Um, and I'm sure the lawyer on their side did the same thing. So malleable, flexible idea that is a very valuable thing to grasp and every lawyer tries to grasp it. And another point that it comes out in the book, which I like, another image that I would say at the outset, is the rule of law is described as a subterranean, like underground backdrop that informs how cases are determined and which does not have a consistently understood meaning. And I think what you're getting at there is every person who's a lawyer or a judge or involved in the legal, you know, in the job of interpreting and applying law in any way comes with the conception of what the law is brings that to bear in their judging or their application or their advocacy and doesn't always do it consciously. And this is one of the things that I think is so important to grasp the theory at the outset and to get how it underpins so much of what we're going to talk about is you'll often see disagreements where you can say, well, you just have a different conception of what the law is than that person does. And that's why you're arguing. You have a different conception of what the law is on a very base fundamental level, uh, but you don't seem to notice that. You're, you're, you're talking past each other because you haven't gotten to the deep subterranean underpinning that's actually making you feel so strongly about a particular issue. Um, you know, you look at, uh, very famously, at the United States Supreme Court and you have this one school of thought of constitutional interpretation called originalism. I'm sure you've all, you all know originalism. Justice Scalia, a big proponent of it. Justice Clarence Thomas, um, you know, strong advocate of originalism. And it's that the law means what the people who wrote it thought it meant. And if you want to change the law, that's the job of uh, you know, the, the deliberative body Congress or Parliament, as the case may be, and it's not the judge's job to bring their worldview into the law and interpret the law in a way that they think is going to make it more fair or a more fair application. Well, that's a conception of what the law is, and that's a conception of what needs to be applied to apply the rule of law. That is how those judges would interpret the rule of law, and so the rule of law is at the base of their originalist philosophy. Other judges who say, no, the law naturally is going to have different meanings in different times and applications, and it should strive for a fair and just outcome, and that's what we're after, is to settle disputes in a fair and just way, and we have to take modern realities into context. These have a different understanding of what the law is, and a different understanding, therefore, of what the rule of law requires. If the law is different, the rule of law requires different things. Neither side thinks that they're disobeying the rule of law, but the originalists certainly strongly assert the other side is. So this dispute is locatable in so many of the core disagreements you'll find in the jurisprudence. What does the law mean? What does the rule of law mean, therefore? 
And I think you're going to, um, you know, be able to, once you start looking for it, you'll be able to pick it up in so many different places. So with that sort of brief uh, pitch for why this is important, I want to get into first uh, where we can find the explicit references to the rule of law and why it is directly uh, relevant in the project of applying the law of Canada. And that is because it is explicit in the Constitution. So the Constitution Act 1982 begins with a preamble that you know, many people skip over, but is the first thing in the Constitution. And it says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So that's how the 1982 Constitution starts out. Courts have also said it is implicit in the Constitution Act 1867, the idea of the rule of law. The preamble to the 1867 Constitution Act, the British North America Act, talks about a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. Now, ironically, it's not similar in principle because what's the big feature of the United Kingdom Constitution as compared to the Canadian Constitution? One's written and the other one's not, right? The UK doesn't have a written constitution. So it is sort of an ironic statement to make. But the courts have interpreted that statement as meaning that the key concepts which animate the UK constitutional framework will apply in Canada. And this includes ideas like responsible government, but it also includes explicitly, as been found by the courts, the rule of law. So this idea of the rule of law is foundational to Canada. It's, in, it's implicit in the 1867 Constitution Act, explicit in the 1982 Constitution Act. And yet, people have a hard time agreeing upon what it exactly means. And that's what we're going to get into next. What is this debate around what the rule of law means? How has it been articulated? What are the component parts to it? So the perhaps most coherent articulation from the Supreme Court of Canada on what the rule of law means comes from the 2005 Imperial Tobacco British Columbia case. Um, you might remember that case from constitutional law. That's the one where the British Columbia passes the Health Care Recovery Act, where they're saying, hey, tobacco companies, you know, you knew that this was dangerous. You let everybody smoke for years and years and years and years. We're paying a lot of money for it. You made a lot of money. You got to pay us a bunch of money. And the tobacco companies said, hold on. <laughs> you can't just go back into the past and say we were wrong 20 years ago and give us a big, a big old bill. That's um, you know retroactive application of liability. It wasn't illegal when we did it. Now you're making it illegal. This is contrary to the rule of law is basically the argument. And so the Supreme Court of Canada was faced with really well-funded lawyers. Like this is, if you ever want to see who the lawyers who bill the most are, look for tobacco cases and look for the lawyers who argue those tobacco cases and then try to get invited to their houses. And the, the court says, the rule of law, BC Imperial Tobacco, 
The rule of law is a fundamental postulate of our constitutional structure. So again, that's getting at, we're talking about the fundamental organization of the Constitution, preamble to 1867, you've got to take into account the rule of law. And they cite the Ron Corelli case, which we're gonna talk about in depth next class. Probably my favorite case. Uh, it's such an interesting set of facts and the way it, it, it resonates in so many different areas. Um, that, and they, they go on with this fundamental postulate that lies at the root of our system of government. It expressly, it is expressly acknowledged by the preamble to the Constitution Act 82 and is implicit in 1867. So, what I just said. The, this is the key passage, paragraph 58 of Imperial Tobacco, and it, this is in the notes that you're going to get, so don't try to you know, copy it down verbatim if you don't want to. This court has described the rule of law as embracing three principles. Okay, so this is, you're getting the principles. First, the law is supreme over officials of the government as well as private individuals and thereby preclusive of the influence of arbitrary power. So this is a really important one. I'm going to say it again just so we can unpack it. The law is supreme over officials as well as private individuals. Doesn't matter that you are a police officer, a prime minister, whoever you may be, you are equally subject to the law. And thereby preclusive of the influence of arbitrary power. And this is again that idea, if you only get your power from the law, you must find a root in the law, and you don't have an arbitrary ability to say, whatever you may want to say and thereby uh, influence somebody, even if you are an official of the government. So that's the first principle. And fundamentally, that's the whole project of administrative law, right? As I've described it, is we're looking for what is the authority that lets that official, that decision maker, whoever that may be, that part of the executive, what is the authority that gives that um, entity jurisdiction to make a decision and the judicial project of administrative law is to make sure you stay within that jurisdiction right so that's rule of law right there the second this is carrying on with the uh, imperial tobacco the second requires the creation and maintenance of an actual order of positive laws which preserves and embodies the more general principle of normative order. We'll come back to that in a second. I, I, this is an interesting one, how this resonates in administrative law. The third requires that the relationship between the state and the individual be regulated by law. And I think that this third one is really kind of a subset of the first one. I think that it, it's kind of entailed within that. Um, if you're going to look for authority for every official action, then you're going to require that the law regulate that interaction between the um, official and the individual. So in essence, this third principle is saying, you know, it's required that the judiciary can oversee that relationship between the official and the individual. The courts have since the Manitoba, or sorry, the Imperial Tobacco case, recognized a fourth um, element of the rule of law that resonates, and that's in the Trial Lawyers Association case, 
Did you read that one in your charter? Yeah, I imagine you would have. Uh, and so it's the idea that access to the courts is a necessary component for the rule of law. Um, can, you, can you really have law if you don't have the ability to access somebody to determine legal questions? That's a pretty brave step, I think, in that case. And you know, it's resonated a bit, and I think it's going to probably grow in importance as the time progresses. Uh, the principles enumerated in that, or set out in that case. So these are all relevant to administrative law, and that first principle is really the, the key core of it. But I don't want to give short shrift to the second component of the rule of law, the idea that the rule of law requires a positive order of laws. It requires there to be laws in order for there to be a rule of law. Because concern around um, diminishing the actual legal order through deferring to the interpretations of these administrative tribunals and letting a whole bunch of different interpretations of law stand makes some people very uncomfortable and makes some people feel we are diminishing this order of laws that is a fundamental component of the rule of law. So very few people disagree with the notion that public officials should have to find authority for their actions within the law. Where people really disagree about the rule of law is really on this question of what is the law that's going to give people those powers? Who gets to interpret it? Is there a single right answer? These are the questions that make it tricky, I think. And so those really come into play in the second component of the rule of law. And the key case on that is the Manitoba language rights case. Do you remember that one from constitutional law? It's the crazy one where the Supreme Court was like, yeah, literally every law you've passed is unconstitutional. <laughs> because the Constitution says that the laws of Manitoba shall be published in both official languages, because it's the Manitoba Act, which brings Manitoba into the Union, or into Confederation. And they just don't do it. <laughs> like, just don't. And so um, an interesting case about constitutional remedies, but the court also says, look, can we strike down every law in Manitoba right now? <laughs> and they say, no, the rule of law would be violated by that. It's like, are we going to have the purge or not? So the, um, the court says in the Manitoba language case, and I think there's a lot to unpack in this passage, so I'm going to read it again. I don't, I'm going to read a, a number of passages from the court today. I'm not going to do that every class, but I think there's, we want to see how these high-level principles are articulated at the highest level. So the court says, the rule of law requires the creation and maintenance of an actual order of positive laws, which preserves and embodies the more general principle of normative order. Law and order are indispensable elements of civilized life, the rule of law in this sense implies simply the existence of public order. John Locke says a government without laws is, I suppose, a mystery in politics, inconceivable to human capacity and inconsistent with human society. 
Wade and Phillips, the rule of law expresses a preference for law and order within a community rather than anarchy, welfare, and constant strife. In this sense, the rule of law is a philosophical view of society, which in the Western tradition is linked with basic democratic notions. So you see the stakes that they're saying. They're saying either have a positive order of laws or have anarchy and strife. And then th that's, that's one frames it as a, as a choice. Locke, I think, probably more wisely phrases it as just human nature. You're going to have laws. And if you think a society doesn't have laws, you're probably not looking very carefully. And um, you know, I think a lot of the, we'll get into this later in the course a bit, but a lot of the um, outdated views towards indigenous societies are coming from this idea of, oh, there wasn't any law. Uh, and then when you take even a moment to speak uh, and to study the issue, you're like, well, it's absolutely a clear and coherent indigenous legal system for every indigenous group. And so the, what I'm getting at here is that you have this idea that goes so core to the, either it's necessary to ward off anarchy or it's inherent in human existence if there's going to be law and order. And then the question becomes, well, if there's going to be law and order, what is the nature of that law? What is the degree to which we demand that that law be predictable? And who gets to decide exactly what the law is? If we require there be laws, if we demand there be laws, we have to get into, well, what is a law, what is a system of laws in order to satisfy that demand. So this is where it gets very esoteric, very theoretical, and this is where people will bring a certain um, you know, predisposition, worldview, that will make it hard at times to see the other side of a rule of law debate. All right, so with that sort of broad introduction, I want you to think that there's these four um, components of the rule of law that have been recognized by the courts, that officials are bound by the law, that there will be a, a um, order of laws, that the um, relationship between the individual and the state will be, will be uh, regularized or be um, governed by law, and finally, that there will be access to the courts to determine the law. Those four concepts. And I want to get into the, you know, why is the rule of law? Why is the second part of deciding, you know, what is this positive order? Why is it so hard when we've got statutes, we've got case books, we've got law libraries, we've got this huge, giant you know, mechanism to understand what the law seems to mean, why is it still so hard? And fundamentally, you know, I think it comes down to interpretation of statutes and interpretation of legal principles is hard and reasonable people can disagree. So I've put up on the board two sections. Does anybody recognize where these come from? Yeah, where, where do they come from? Exactly, the Dawn case. And these are actually provisions of the Supreme Court Act, which creates the Supreme Court of Canada. If you remember the Constitution, Section 101 doesn't um, 
create the Supreme Court, it creates the power to create the Supreme Court. Parliament creates a Supreme Court really quickly after Confederation through the Supreme Court Act. And the Don case teaches us that the Supreme Court Act actually becomes part of the Constitution because in the Constitution Act 1982, when they set out an amending formula, it includes a rule that says that the composition of the Supreme Court requires a constitutional amendment. So this is Supreme Court Act, an act of parliament, which has since become part of the constitutional fabric of Canada. And what happened with Nadan? It's the craziest thing that's happened in my like legal career, I think, is watching this happen. Um, I don't know how many of you were really closely watching the law at the time, but if you were, I think you would be probably in the same where you expected he would be allowed to sit. You know, you have an appointment of a Supreme Court judge. He goes, I think he takes the oath of office. He's at the court, like down the hall. And then Rocco Galati, who's you know a lawyer who's pressed a lot of important issues, but also has a bit of a checkered reputation at times. He starts this thing saying, "Yeah, guys, it can't be a, a judge because you know it violates the Supreme Court Act." The Harper government says, "Give me a break!" But just to put this to bed, so it doesn't have to work its way up from you know trial level appeals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, leaving this guy's judgments in doubt. Let's just have a reference, get this settled once and for all. Everyone expects it's gonna be a pretty easy answer. Yes, go ahead, you know, buddy down the hall, you can start hearing cases. But instead, they say, go, <laughs> you're up. And what does it turn on? Two words, right? It turns on from among, right? That's all it turns on. You have two views of two words by two groups and well i guess one judge by himself and the other um eight judge or it wouldn't be eight it would be the other six judges i suppose who would have sat on this case and the dispute is does from among impose a temporal meaning does it mean that you have to be currently one of the judges of the Court of Appeal or the Superior Court of the Province of Quebec or the advocates of the province? Or does it not import a temporal meaning, meaning that as long as you were once one of the judges or advocates of the Province of Quebec, you are allowed to be a judge of the Supreme Court? It's two words. The consequences of how you interpret those two words are huge. Justice Don doesn't get to sit. Justice Gascon gets to sit. Justice Gascon retires. Justice Cassery is now on the court. Justice Don's still judging at the Federal Court of Appeal. All those people's lives are changed. All the 5-4 decisions that Justice Gascon or Cassery has been involved in could have gone the other way. It's truly remarkable how important that interpretation is to how the law has been applied. And yet, what can we glean from this? Is there a right answer to this question? And some of the judges saw it, some of the judges didn't see it at the Supreme Court of Canada. 
Are there multiple reasonable ways to interpret this? That's getting at this core question of what is the law. If you feel like there's a right answer, maybe the judges in the majority got it wrong and Moldaver was right, maybe the judges in the majority were right and Moldaver was wrong, but there must be a right answer. It's the law, for goodness sake. There has to be a right answer. The rule of law must require there be law and not just a range of possible outcomes. If you feel that way, that's absolutely a defensible way to feel. That, that makes perfect sense. If you feel the other way, and you feel like, no, they're both reasonable interpretations. There's not really one right answer here. I can see both sides. And a judge's job is to you know, pick amongst uh, different possible interpretations to get to the one they think is the most fair and just in the circumstances. I can't disagree with you either there. That's the dispute, right? That's the fundamental dispute. So how did the two um, groups come to disagreement? Well, the majority says that, you know, you look at section five, you look at section six, they say section five refer refers to both present and past. They judge who is or has been a judge. They say if the court or if the parliament wanted to let you go back and find people who used to be, they not only could they do it, they've shown you how they do it. They do it that way. It's in the previous section. Right? Then they also go to the French language uh, interpretation and say that that supports their interpretation. The dissent says, no, from among needs to be read on its face. And it doesn't have any precise temporal meaning at all. Um, the dissent says, the words take their meaning from the surrounding context, and they can't on their own support the contention that you must be a current member of the bar or bench. And you know what the dissent says? If you had wanted to make this explicitly require you currently be somebody who's a member of a bar or a bench, you could have made it really clear. You could have made it really explicit from among the current judges of the Court of Appeal or the current advocates of that province. You could have settled it just like that. So both sides turned to, well, you could have done it this other way if you wanted to. Um, they have this fundamental dispute the consequences are dramatic for you know, one individual, but frankly for all of Canada, and that you get different governance at the highest level. And what I want you to take away from this is, you know, I don't, not how you land on this question of, you know, is there a right answer to this question, but just that it's important to grapple with whether or not the law always demands a right answer. Um, if you find this hard, if you read both those decisions, you're like, I kind of get where both sides are coming from, which is certainly where I land when I read those decisions. But I think that's going to help you accept at least the idea that reasonableness review on the law may be a defensible thing. Uh, whereas if you feel very strongly, there's got to be a correct answer. That's what the rule of law demands. You're probably going to find reasonableness review of the law to be a challenging concept to get to when we get into that part of the course. Are there any questions on anything so far?
All right. So I'm going to move out of this preliminary question of kind of what is the law and is it right to have different interpretations? Is there a correct answer? And I want to ask more uh, fundamentally, kind of moving out of that bucket two and into the buckets one and three of what the Supreme Court says comprises the rule of law. And this is the question of, is the rule of law the project of judges and the courts? Or do other institutional actors, administrative actors, have the responsibility to interpret, apply, and uphold the rule of law? And you'll note in your book throughout, um, Mary Liston comes back and back to this scenario. Uh, I'm not going to go through that scenario today. Do you recognize those are the Ron Corelli facts, in essence, right? We're going to be going through that next class. And what I want to get at is this dispute between different schools of thought as to whether it should be the courts exclusively who have the project of upholding and applying the rule of law, the responsibility, or whether that responsibility can spread more broadly. And the first conception that gives primacy to the courts for upholding the rule of law, and which looks down upon delegation to administrative decision makers, and which requires uh, significant oversight from the courts, you want to think it's associated with a particular thinker, and you should be thinking dicey for this, right? This is the Dicean uh, approach to rule of law. And so Dicey articulates the rule of law as having three features. He says, rule of law requires the absence of arbitrary and discretionary authority in government, but especially in the executive branch and the administrative state. Formal legal equality, so every person, including and especially public officials, are equally subject to the law of the land. And the existence of constitutional law is a binding part of the ordinary law of the land. And within the Dicey framework, he elevates the role of judges as being absolutely indispensable to this project. as they are the ones who are able to interpret and apply the law in a consistent and principled manner. And get into the other conception of the rule of law in a second, and we're actually gonna watch after the break a, um, a decently long video from somebody who can explain it much better than I can, um, Lord Bingham of the you know, famous uh, judge of the United Kingdom. But before there, I want to show you how this dispute over whether we're taking a Dicean view of the rule of law, which elevates the role of judges and downplays how much can be given to administrative decision makers, still resonates in our jurisprudence and I'm going to read from you the first of many times we're going to read from the Babylon case. So, I mean, I keep saying Babylon, but I, I wonder, 
how many people feel familiar at all with that case? Have you touched on it a bit? All right, I'm just gonna like introduce it at the highest level because we're gonna be coming back to this case over and over and over again. So Vavilov is Supreme Court of Canada's most recent broad, coherent, hopefully, articulation of how to approach administrative law, but particularly how to approach substantive review. You're not asking about the procedure, that's the Baker case, we'll talk about Baker a bunch, but rather about the substance of the decision. Did your decision in what it does and why comport with the jurisdiction that you were given to make that decision? Is the substance of your decision within jurisdiction? Which asks the question ordinarily, was the substance of your decision reasonable? Because we remember, we're going to assume Parliament didn't let you be unreasonable. Babylon, um, so the way these things come up is kind of wild. The Supreme Court of Canada uh, had their previous big case called Dunsmere. And this came out in 2008, I think. I was in admin law at the time. And the, the court there says, okay, we're gonna, listen everybody, we're revisiting admin law. Do you wanna get a word in, apply to intervene? We wanna hear a bunch of different voices and we want to settle this once and for all. We are gonna do a complete reworking of admin law and Dunsmere and it's gonna stand the test of time. Nine years later, they're like, okay, we're doing that over again. Come on back, everybody. And they announced they're gonna hear three cases and are interested in submissions on you know, substantive re review. You should have seen the rush from all these nerdy lawyers to find a client who they could say they were representing in order to get an intervener fact in. in. It's unbelievable. I think it's such a funny project. And you're, you all will, at some point, probably play that that game too. I mean, intervening is really fun and great way to, you know, get the Supreme Court of Canada to be able to say you did that. But, but um, you get just this huge spectrum of different lawyers coming and giving different submissions on how are you supposed to approach judicial review. Um, the Babylon case itself is insane. The facts of it. It's the TV show, The Americans, was literally based on the facts of this case. Uh, it was a, a guy whose parents were secret Russian spies. He had no idea. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? And he finds out as an adult, but he's born and raised in Canada. So he goes to get his passport renewed, and the person's like, it says here your parents were secret Russian spies. <laughs> and so they say, you're not allowed to have a passport because the children of um, diplomats, in essence, are an exception to the rule of birthright citizenship. So you're not a Canadian citizen because ordinarily if you, you, know, you go in foreign service and go abroad, your kid would be a Canadian citizen, not a... German citizen or whatever country you were, you know, happen to be in when that child was born. So, I mean, a crazy set of facts. The question is, you know, whether this was a reasonable interpretation of the immigration laws and whether this person gets to have a Canadian passport or not. And what you get in Babylon is the majority setting out a very um, 
you know, I think easy to apply framework which says if you want to know whether you're going to be looking at review of the substance of an administrative decision from a correctness, you know, did you get the law right or reasonableness? Did you interpret the law in a way that's within a range of reasonable possible outcomes? You're almost always going to be in reasonableness unless certain exceptions apply. And so it's a we're going to spend a lot of time on Vavilov, on its implications, on the road leading up to Vavilov. But you, why I raise it today is because I want to highlight a part of the dissent where the dissent accuses the majority of being Dicean. You know, that's, that's the problem with the, the majority's view. So Justice Abella, and I'm going to sort of hold up Justice Abella as sort of the um, the figure person for the view that it's a good idea to let administrative tribunals have a wide range of latitude in how they interpret and apply the law because that will increase access to justice and we ought not to let concerns about the rule of law and the primacy of judges um, detract from this broader project of bringing law down to more accessible tribunals. That's kind of Justice Abella's um, one of her main uh, you know, legal ideas she's pushed forward. A brilliant woman, and she's going to be sorely missed by the court, no doubt. And so her and Justice Karakatsanis write, in the majority's framework, deference gives way whenever the rule of law demands it. The majority's approach to the rule of law, however, flows from a court-centric conception of the rule of law rooted in Dicey's 19th century philosophy. The rule of law is not the rule of courts. A pluralist conception of the rule of law, pluralist conception of the rule of law, recognizes that courts are not the exclusive guardians of law and that others in the justice arena, it's a fun place to be, have shared responsibility for its development, including administrative decision makers. So you get the idea here that she's saying, you are going back to Dicey, you're elevating the court, you're saying only the court can claim the rule of law. I say no, I say it's pluralistic. The rule of law is not simply the uh, purview of the courts, but rather administrative decision makers can be a part of this project of upholding the rule of law. So I raised that passage, you know, not because we're going to get into this debate between the majority and the dissent in Babylon at this time, we certainly will later, but because it shows how this fundamental tension that we're going to explore a little bit further even after the break between a Dicean court-centric view of the rule of law and this um, later developing pluralistic, as Justice Abella and Karakatsanis describe it, conception of the rule of law, which encompasses other decision makers within it, still resonates very much today and is in fact driving the dissent in the most important case you know, in uh, administrative law today. So I'm going to take the break now. Let's take um, 10 minutes, and when we come back, I'm going to set up this video of Lord Bingham.
All right, so I think we might have salvaged that. So let's get back to it. So what I want to show is a, um, a presentation that Lord Bingham made when he was um, sort of promoting his book entitled The Rule of Law. Lord Bingham was a judge of the, uh, in the United Kingdom. He was the Chief Justice of the, I forget the name, uh, of the Court of something or other. He was a very high-ranking judge in the UK, widely regarded as one of the greatest lawyers of his time. Um, not quite my favorite Chief Justice of, in the UK, just by name alone. Are you familiar with who the name of the guy who was Chief Justice a little while, like five, 10 years ago? His last name was Judge. So his, <laughs> his official name, like you're called, he's called the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Bingham. This guy was the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Judge. <laughs> Great. Um, so, but this Lord Bingham, you know, absolutely an incredibly smart thinker, um, and what he thought about at the end of his life, what he dedicated the last few years of his life to, was the rule of law, and in particular, a rule of law that was more inclusive and broader than the Dicean framework. You know, he saw the last thing he wanted to do, in essence, was to provide a counterpoint to a more narrow Dicean conception of the rule of law. And so rather than try to summarize his views, I found this nice video. So I'm going to watch about 13 minutes of it. Um, he's got you know, a lovely voice and, um, and explains this all very, very beautifully. So I thought it would be better for me just to show it rather than to try to summarize it. So let's, um, let's watch this. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all very much indeed for um, turning up. Uh, the rule of law is an expression uh, that I think most of us uh, have been familiar with as an expression uh, for very, very uh, many years. We've heard of politicians, including it among the list of desirable things, uh, usually along with freedom and democracy, things of that kind. We've heard judges using it. Um, they tend to say, Parliament oh, couldn't possibly have intended to enact this exactly by the rule of law. And we've heard the expression used in very uh, dignified international instruments, uh, like the preambles, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the European Convention of Human Rights, the Treaty of the European Union. Uh, but on none of these occasions, uh, on my level, has anybody ever caused, having invoked the rule of law, to say what they actually mean by it. Uh, and then, right, in 2005, Section 111, Constitutional Reform Act of that year, by amendment, enacted, nothing in this act shall detract from the existing constitutional principle of the rule of law. Well, now, <clears throat> uh, from that, uh, we uh, derive that there is an existing constitutional principle uh, and that the Act doesn't detract uh, from it. Uh, but anybody who looks through uh, the back of the Act or indeed elsewhere uh, to find a definition doesn't find one. Uh, 
and I, my own view is very wise not to try and give one because uh, of the difficulty um, of it. But, I mean, this now is recognized by statute as a principle of our constitution, that is, of the most basic rules that govern uh, this uh, country. Uh, and that, of course, means that a time is bound to come, and has indeed already come, when uh, people in court invoke it, and they say we're relying on this constitutional principle. Uh, and so, uh, sort of vague obfuscation as to what it actually means uh, cannot uh, be pursued. Now, I've attempted, um, first of all, in a, a sentence uh, to sum up, in, I'm afraid, a rather legalistic way, uh, what the crux of this is. Uh, and I think it is really this, uh, that all individuals and organizations within the state, whether public or private, are bound by and entitled to the benefit of, quite important, uh, laws prospectively promulgated uh, and publicly administered in the courts. Uh, now that's quite a mouthful. And what uh, this little book really consists of is trying to spell out in a little bit more detail, and indeed in a way uh, that uh, is intended to be extremely accessible to anybody, whether they're a lawyer or not, is what this actually means. And so I've suggested eight principles. Uh, first of these, you may say, well, goodness me, what could be more obvious than that? Um, it is that the law should, so far as possible, be clear, accessible, uh, and intelligible. If we're all bound to obey the law, uh, and if we're entitled to the benefit of it, we do need, without undue difficulty, uh, to be able to find what the law is. You may say, well, sure, there's no problem about that. Well, there is a problem uh, with governments churning out thousands of pages of legislation every year, and those thousands of pages of legislation being uh, supplemented uh, by um, uh, thousands more pages of ministerial orders made under statute, it is extremely difficult to know what the law is, not least because provisions are amended and then the amendment is amended and then the amendment to the amendment is amended. And there's a case which I recount in the book uh, where a man uh, was the subject of a compensation order of 66,000 pounds and it was only at a very late stage and by chance that it emerged that the order under which uh, this order had been made had been revoked seven years earlier. And nobody could have found it out. However, pointing uh, a finger of accusation at Parliament isn't good enough because the judges themselves are given to extreme prolixity and length and complication. And they do not do, in my opinion, what they might do uh, to make the law uh, as simple and straightforward as they might. Uh, and this is true at the highest level, where you get five people all giving their own take on something. That's point one. Point two is that, by and large, uh, we should be governed by law and not discretion. We don't want, by and large, to be subject to the arbitrary whim of some autocrat, uh, whether he be a minister or an official or a judge. And it occurred to me this morning, uh, that you couldn't really get a, a much better example than that, uh, than the execution of John the Baptist by Herod. Why did he do it? Because of something terrible that John the Baptist had done? No, uh, because he promised his daughter 
that in return for her wonderful dancing, uh, he would give her anything she wanted. Um, and anything more utterly contrary to the rule of law than that, it would be quite hard to imagine. Uh, the third thing I um, elaborate a little is equality before the law. And again, people say, well, that's quite obvious. Uh, surely we're all equal before the law. Well, um, slaves weren't equal. Uh, a number of uh, religious believers were not equal until relatively uh, recently. Uh, women were not equal uh, until uh, recently. And there is a tendency, not just in this country, but elsewhere, uh, to treat non-nationals unequally, uh, not simply in an immigration context, uh, but for other purposes as well. Fourth point I make uh, is that the exercise of public powers, i.e. powers publicly conferred by statute, uh, should be exercised by those on whom they're conferred reasonably, fairly, honestly, and importantly, for the purpose for which they're conferred. I mean, many of you will recall the example when the Terrorism Act, the Terrorism Act, was invoked uh, to um, exclude a man who told the Home Secretary of the Labour Party conference that he was talking rubbish. Uh, it was the Foreign Secretary, not, not, not the Home Secretary. Uh, so we, uh, it's a very important principle. We elect members of parliament, we give them authority to make laws, they make laws, the laws bind us. But we don't give it, the people who are given powers by those laws a blank check. We give them power to do what the statute says they can or must do. Sixth point, dispute resolution. Uh, we live in a society where private vengeance is discounted. If you are owed a lot of money by somebody, uh, you don't um, hire a lot of heavies to go and threaten the man uh, until he pays it, as used to happen in um, Russia after um, so, But there is a corollary of this. I mean, if in the last resort, I'm not advocating resort to litigation, litigation does not, on the whole, lead to happiness. Uh, I'm not certainly discounting arbitration, mediation, conciliation, in other words, of resolving cases out of court. They're entirely beneficial. But in the last resort, uh, if we have rights to assert or to defend, we ought to be able to go to a court established by the law of the land in order to get an answer, assuming uh, that it isn't a frivolous or stupid or utterly uh, hopeless uh, contention. That, you may say, again, is completely obvious, but we all, I think, know uh, that the expense of litigation uh, is such uh, as to make it very, very difficult and a formidable undertaking uh, for anybody except the very rich or the legally aided, a diminishing group, uh, to go to court uh, for almost any purpose. This isn't a new problem. Uh, in uh, the 1650s, uh, someone said, you know, the law is beyond remedy, it costs 10 pounds to recover five. 
Well, it's a problem that uh, some centuries later is still with us, as is the problem of today. Uh, it's not as bad as Italy, for example. Uh, but it does take much too long uh, for cases uh, to reach the court. Uh, I should have mentioned human rights. There are those who say human rights have nothing to do with it. If the law is absolutely clear, the law should be observed, and it doesn't matter uh, how poorly uh, the things are that the law prescribes. Well, I um, passionately disagree with that view, and maybe Chami uh, disagrees with it even more passionately, um, and it may be we will uh, talk about it. Uh, but my own contention is that while human rights are not universal, nobody is going to say that women have equal rights in uh, Saudi Arabia uh, to Western European uh, countries, but within any given society, I think there is a high degree of consensus as to what the most uh, important uh, rights are. Uh, my uh, next principle is that the state should provide a fair trial. Again, completely obvious, and you may say, well, of course, a criminal trial should be fair, a civil trial should be fair. Uh, I also address what I call hybrid or sort of mixed trials, which are not criminal, uh, and are not strictly civil either. But, for example, it's a case uh, where a prisoner is seeking uh, release on parole, and there's a hearing call before the parole. Or, uh, let us say, somebody is the subject of an application for a control order uh, by the Home Secretary. Now, these are situations in which there have been, uh, and are on the statute book, departures uh, from what has hitherto been regarded as almost the most fundamental ingredient of a fair trial, which is the requirement. Uh, that a person who's the subject of an adverse order, like being refused parole or being made the subject of a control order, should know what the case is against him uh, and have a complete opportunity to argue it in a forum where the judge or decision maker uh, has received no material which he has not. Now that's been departed from uh, because of grounds of national security. Uh, Provision has been made that there are situations uh, in which the decision maker can be given material which is not shown to the defendant, if we call him that, not shown to his lawyers, uh, but uh, shown to a special advocate uh, who is shown the material uh, but cannot communicate uh, with the defendant after he's seen it. And so he can't take instructions and say, well, um, what do I ask this witness? Do you know him? Is he reliable in that? What we will do this So you, you can't do anything. Uh, and and uh, the last uh, of my eight uh, principles uh, is uh, that uh, the state should comply with its duties in international law as it should with its duties in national law. Now, international law covers um, very significant areas. Uh, uh, international right, the law of the sea, the law of the air, the law of right of state, the law of Antarctica, etc., etc., and things uh, closer to uh, home. 
the ministerial code, which binds all ministers in this country, uh, says that they should comply uh, with international as well as national law. Uh, and of course, uh, international law governs the use of force. And as uh, Sir Michael Wood, uh, without at that stage betraying any view at all, was on him, uh, he said about the war of Iraq, in Iraq, uh, it really raises no significant question of principle. It either was authorized or it wasn't by the security council of the United Nations. So that is the crux uh, of, of, of this debate. The, the government and its immediate advisors uh, suggest it was authorized. Um, uh, a large body of opinion, um, including my own, uh, says it was uh, not authorized. So, um, in conclusion, at this stage, uh, we live in a world which is riven by differences of race, religion, nationality, wealth, etc., etc. Uh, et uh, and there are hosts of problems that no set of legal principles uh, is ever going to uh, overcome. But the principles that I've been talking about uh, comprise under the general heading of the rule of law are very widely accepted among the nations of the world. Uh, I've suggested, and I suggest again, that it's the nearest we're likely to come to a universal secular religion. Uh, and I've also suggested and suggest again uh, that observance of these uh, principles is the best recipe that the world has yet devised, uh, not only for good government at home, uh, but also for peace, order, and cooperation uh, among the nations of the world. Thank you very, very much indeed. So, first off, I think when you become like 80, you should get that accent. That'd be fun. <laughs> but also, um, I think that what you see there is such a broader conception of the rule of law than a narrow, strict, Dicean three rules type framework. And you see some things that get into not just this sort of precise, there should be laws and they should be the courts to decide and there should be, um, it, officials should act in accordance with the laws. But you see some ideas about the substance of what those laws should be also getting into the discussion. And when he says human rights is a component of the rule of law and treating people the same, be they uh, women or racial minorities or immigrants, that this is a rule of law concern, he is certainly saying something that would make Dicey uh, very angry and would object to that. That is not what 
uh, Dicean says the rule of law is about. The rule of law is about letting this parliament that is supreme and sovereign and can do whatever it wants pass its laws and then applying them faithfully so that people are governed by those laws and not by the whims of individual judges. And if you ask the judge to bring in their own conception of equality into the law that they're interpreting and applying, you are raising the possibility of great difference in how that law is interpreted and applied, right? So it's a different conception. It's a conception that is much more encompassing of, um, of both different approaches on the substance and also would allow more people to have access to that and to be a part of the project of interpreting and applying that conception of the rule of law. So it is this sort of answer to the Dicean framework where you're saying the rule of law is not going to be this, this narrow conception. It's going to be a broad idea. I mean, it's so broad that it's going to be a secular religion. It's, that's pretty broad that he sees the rule of law as encompassing. Um, you have this in your book, a summary of Lord Bingham's approach. It's on that table at page 149 uh, to 150. And you also see two other thinkers who are also posited as having taken a more broad and inclusive approach to the rule of law along with Lord Bingham. Um, so there's a few things that I want to sort of draw out from what he said and what we've been talking about that I hope will set the stage for our transition into the very practical application of this when we finally actually get to some admin law next class. And those are the ideas of arbitrariness, predictability, and then I want to come back and finish with a bit of a, a discussion again of primitive clauses. So I think whoever you were to talk about the rule of law with, be it Dicey, be it Bingham, be it anyone, they are going to say that arbitrariness is the opposite of the rule of law. And it's this sort of battle against arbitrariness that can be kind of seen as the fundamental framing of this rule of law question. Both procedural and substantive arbitrariness. Procedural arbitrariness and saying, I will hear from you, landlord, I will not hear from you, tenant. Or procedural arbitrariness in not knowing the case to meet. Um, you are going to lose your house. Why? Can't tell you. These are the fundamental questions that we're going to get into in procedural fairness. How do we avoid arbitrary process? Natural justice is the um, sort of the root of these ideas of procedural fairness, and they're the ideas that there is this, um, these fundamental rights which must be observed if you are going to give somebody a fair judicial determination. And most fundamentally, it's the right to know the case to meet and to get a chance to meet it. That is the 
the way the rule of law would fight back against arbitrariness in procedure. Substantive arbitrariness in the rule of law is again this idea that if the state were to be able to exercise powers that were not rooted in and constrained by the law, that would give an arbitrary authority to an individual over the, the public, and that cannot be consistent with the rule of law. So I want you to have that framing of whatever we're thinking about arbitrariness, whatever we're getting at these sort of core ideas of um, responsible exercise of state power in a fair way, these are fundamentally rule of law concerns. The more fraught issue that I want to touch on is this idea of predictability and the rule of law. And Lord Bingham touches on it when he says, you know, you want to, the state, the, the individual should be able to know the law that governs them. Well, that's not controversial. Well, isn't it? Because there are so many statutes that are passed each day and so many, I mean, he calls them ministerial orders. We would call them regulations. So many regulations that are passed thousands and thousands of pages and you can't actually know the law. And you add on top of that the common law which interprets and applies those statutes. And then you add on top of it also quite a few statutes and regulations give discretion to the decision maker as to how to resolve a particular dispute. When you have all that, are you sacrificing predictability? Can we really know how the law is going to apply to our situations? And that's a, a hugely important question, not just for admin law, but for your legal studies broadly. And you know, the reality is, if you go to a lawyer with a complex question, and you say to them, what's going to happen if I take this to trial? What should the good lawyer say? Well, probably not. Definitely this, right? It's probably going to be, there's a range of different things. This could break different ways. There's a few key facts that could turn your case either way. There's some, there's some concepts that are coming into conflict here, and it'll depend how the judge resolves these competing interests. So the goal of predictability and the reality of complex modern um, the complex modern legal system don't always seem to be in perfect harmony. Sometimes it can seem to be uh, impossible to predict what's going to happen in any particular case. And that frankly drives people to, to settlement quite often. Um, you know, you just don't know how a case is going to break out. So The book suggests that predictability um, includes or is, um, is furthered by access to a legal professional. Uh, the idea that the governed can't really know the law, it's too complex. So you have to be able to go to a lawyer to understand and access the law, to have a predictable legal system. But you know, as I'm sort of getting at, that doesn't necessarily resolve the question either. You may just get a more expensive, I don't know, than you previously had. Um, so this tension, this predictability tension, is really 
closely aligned with that question of the, uh, the Nadan case, and is there more than one reasonable answer to a legal problem? Um, whether or not you accept theoretically that there really is more than one answer, that the law is more about probabilities than certainties, you probably should grapple with the reality that you don't always know how a case is going to go. Um, when you advise your clients, the best thing you can do is give them a range of likely outcomes and tell them the relative likelihood of each and the risks associated with going forward because while we may think you're going to get this outcome, there's a chance you get this outcome. So the lack of predictability in the law as a descriptive thing is, I think, beyond dispute at any level of complexity. There's going to be some range of possible outcomes. Again, whether you theoretically accept that as a good thing, that's a personal matter that reasonable people can easily disagree on. But we see this, um, this debate playing out even in a 2020 Supreme Court of Canada case. So in 2020, you have this um, Fraser and Canada case which is a case about the interpretation of section 15, equality. And I'm sure you all you know, learned how difficult the equality provision is to interpret and apply when you went through your charter in the previous years. Um, would you have touched on this Fraser case before? It's pretty recent, so probably not. And what you have is a dispute between Justice Abella and Justices Brown and Rowe on the question of stare decisis, how soon we can depart from stare decisis, and how soon we can depart from stare decisis explicitly on the interpretation application of the Constitution, Section 15. And Justice Abella, I mean, you want to get a judge fired up uh, who you're, you know, you're communicating with through the strange mechanism of, of um, exchanging draft decisions back and forth, you, you say what she says. So in paragraph 135, she starts off talking about Brown and Rowe. Whatever my colleague's definition of rule of law is, ooh, sharp, <laughs> it must surely include the assumption that decisions of the Supreme Court will be respected not only by the public, but by members of the court. So she's saying, look, I get it. You don't like the way the Section 15 jurisprudence has evolved. You think it's a big problem. But you have to respect it. You can't, you can't fight it every time. She says, it must surely include an assurance for those seeking constitutional protections that the ongoing repetition in dissenting reasons of rejected arguments will not require them with each new case to stand ready to defend the exact gains that have been won multiple times in the past. So she's saying, look, you love the rule of law, you talk about rule of law all the time, well, surely, whatever you think about rule of law, it must mean that once the judges decide something, the Supreme Court's going to respect that decision. Brown and Roe, they come back and they say, no, I don't. If, you're, if it's wrong, it's wrong, and we're not going to accept that. Brown and Roe, they say, the lack of definition 
And so they, their basic complaint is that the scope of the equality right is going to change dramatically on the personal opinions and views of the judge because there's inadequate guidance that's been given by the court on how to apply the Section 15 framework. It's become too broad and therefore not predictable. That's their concern fundamentally, that Section 15 has become unpredictable in its application because individual judges are going to apply it differently. They say, where a legal test lacks defined bounds, courts applying it exercise truly arbitrary powers of review. And that's the point at which we have arrived with substantive equality. It has become an unbounded rhetorical vehicle by which the judiciary's policy preferences and personal ideologies are imposed piecemeal upon individual cases. So they're saying the rule of law, in essence, is being undermined by the law that's been described by the Supreme Court of Canada because we're getting arbitrary results, because different judges are applying the same broad concepts of standard equality in different ways in different circumstances. They say the result of all of this is corrosive to the rule of law. Our colleague wonders what our definition of the rule of law is. We share the views of jurists such as Lord Bingham, there he is, and Justice Sharp. The concept of the rule of law has interlocking components. And then they quote from Justice Sharp, a very brilliant judge of the Ontario Court of Appeal, recently retired. And Justice Sharp says, um, the Supreme Court has insisted there must be an intelligible standard capable of providing an adequate basis for legal debate as to the, its meaning by reason analysis, applying legal criteria. So he's saying uh, articulable, measurable standards must be in existence for the rule of law to be maintained. And he cites Erwin Toy, the majority wrote that, where there is no intelligible standard or where a decision maker has been given a plenary discretion to do whatever seems best in a wide set of circumstances, the essential minimum requirements of the rule of law are not met. Keep in mind that notion, a plenary discretion to do whatever seems best in a wide set of circumstances in mind when you think about and read Ron Corelli for next week. They say, our colleague's approach to stare decisis misses the point. The issue is not whether the court section 15 jurisprudence must be loaded quotes respected. The issue, rather, is whether that jurisprudence, as she has interpreted it, states a standard that is practically knowable and reasonably predictable as to results. Then they conclude, such vast and little bounded discretion does not accord with, but rather departs from the rule of law. So remember, I kind of opened this lecture with this idea, everyone's going to claim the rule of law on their side, right? Justice Abella claims it, Justices Brown and Roe claim it. Justice Abella says, surely if we come to a decision and the majority of the Supreme Court of Canada says this is the test, you can't fight it every time. You need to just accept it. If we're revisiting it, we're revisiting it. But if we're not, you can't just dissent every time and say, this is dumb. Like, get over it. You lost. You know, you had your chance. Brown and Rose say, you have undermined the rule of law in this test. We uphold the rule of law. We will never stop saying that, basically. We're not going to stop. We're not going to go away. And so 
you come back to this fundamental disagreement or this fundamental problem of predictability, the rule of law, how much ought the individual views of different decision makers guide the outcomes of the case? Now, this gets back even to a, a fundamental tension that you've probably heard about before, but that push and pull between order, predictability, and fairness, outcomes that seem fair and just in the circumstances. The more discretion, the more ability you give a judge to consider a range of different factors, the more likely they are to be able to get to a result that they at least think is fair in the circumstances, but at the expense of predictability. If there's 15 factors, well, how are you going to weigh every single factor? It's really hard to tell in advance. So this may seem we've gotten really far afield from um, you know, the core focus of administrative law, but I think you'll see when we get back into the, uh, the balance of the course and the idea of this dispute around when do you defer to these administrative tribunals and what circumstances, which really is the core of much of administrative law, this conception, this the issue is, is undergirding all of it. Uh, so I, I hope you, you know, I feel like I've beaten this close to death, but I hope that you're, um, you're with me on, on how this debate um, is framed and continues to resonate in the jurisprudence. Any questions or comments before I just jump back into affirmative clauses really quickly? Yeah, so what's the tension, or what's the dynamic between the Dicean view of the supremacy almost of judges as the guardians of rule of law and his insistence on parliamentary supremacy as kind of the, the that's a great question. Um, and so what he says, in essence, is the judges have this supreme role as the people who can interpret and apply and apply the law, point A. But point B, in exercising that supreme role, they're the ones who are going to understand that Parliament is the supreme setter of the law, and, it's, and they'll be the ones who understand. It's not their job to decide what's fair and just or what the law should be. Their job is just to decide what the law is. And so parliamentary supremacy roots the idea that who decides what the law is, or sorry, what the law should be, who directs the law, well, that should be the elected officials, the responsible people to the, you know, to the, to the public. Who reads and applies those laws in as consistent and predictable a manner as possible? Dicey says that's the courts. So that's sort of the dynamic how those two things work. Any other questions, comments? All right. Does anybody have trouble with the idea of there being possibly more than one, like, law as a range of possible outcomes as opposed to one correct answer? If you do, I mean, don't feel bad. I, I, have, I have a hard time with it. There's an consistency of decisions. So because administrative decision makers are not bound by their own decisions, 
there will be inconsistency because there are yeah. inevitable possible outcomes. And yeah. there will be it's really frustrating at times. Like, I'll give you an example. So I, I was doing some work um, for these people who were being evicted from a trailer park. And in essence, the way a lot of tenancies work, I'm sure you know this, is if you can get the old tenants out, you can really bump up the rents quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of value to a landlord and being able to re-advertise at a new market rate instead of being bound by um, statutory set increases in, in rent. And so this one landlord at this one trailer park was just shameless in abusing the idea that administrative decision makers aren't necessarily bound by their own decisions and they can go different ways on the same issue. And so this landlord, he as a he, just kept on evicting people on the same argument and would lose and lose and lose and then win and then lose and lose and then win at the residential tenancy branch. And it was excruciatingly difficult because at the residential tenancy branch, these things happen very quickly. Nobody gets a lawyer. Like 1% of people have a lawyer at the RTB. It's very hard to look up their previous decisions. The RTB decision makers make so many decisions uh, and they have very little time for each decision and they don't necessarily have a full grasp on what, um, how different disputes have been decided, you know, even in relation to the same trailer park. And so, you know, I got involved at the judicial review level and I had to grapple with that. I get it that you're able to have different outcomes, different reasonable interpretations of the same law. That's what the sort of the whole idea of reasonableness review gets you to. But how does that work when you have this completely arbitrary seeming result that you're being evicted because uh, the person who you had at the RTB accepted the landlord's argument, which was exactly the same as what was presented against this person, who's not being evicted. I mean, is that not corrosive to the rule of law? How arbitrary does that feel to the person who loses their home when that person didn't just because you got John and you got Sue? It's, it's really a problem. Um, so, you know, that dynamic is, is felt. Like, this, this, these problems really do arise and will to grapple with and you know there's a cost to deference and that is an example of how the cost can be borne by individual people so let's um i, I get we're basically out of time that's fine i just wanted to really quickly um highlight even perhaps that the book ties nicely the concept of privative clauses back into the rule of law and privative clauses, you know, once again, have this push-pull on the rule of law where it's the microwave of burrito so hot that, you know, he couldn't eat it question of can Parliament, um, who is supposed to be supreme and making the laws, can they exclude the courts through these unambiguously worded privative clauses? And is it, does the rule of law demand you respect what Parliament says? Who would appreciate that? Dicey, right? Or does the rule of law demand that the judiciary acts as a check on unrestrained admin, or on administrative decision makers who, um, who may be acting outside of their jurisdiction and require a rather searching judicial review? 
That's the tension. Um, it animates again with rule of law concerns. And again, you can see how both sides can grab the mantle of the rule of law in that dispute. Both sides can say they're the one acting in accordance with the rule of law. So maybe I won't go deeper into that because we'll be talking more about privative clauses when we get into the substantive review. But I want to hopefully bring us right back to where we started and, and um, you know, this whole idea of this lecture is to understand that there are disagreements about the meaning of the rule of law. I hope we have a sense as to what those disagreements may be, even if it's a somewhat vague sense, but in broad strokes, understanding as a disagreement. And I hope that that will carry with us forward and we can use it to understand legal arguments and judicial interpretation. So that was the project for today. If we've gotten through there, then we're in a really good stage to jump into the practical next class and then you know, really get into the, the start to get in the trees and leave the forest a bit behind next week as we talk about remedies, what's available in judicial review. All right, thanks very much. Um, and the readings are up for next class. You'll note there's highlighted sections for three of the four cases. That's what you should focus on. Read more if it's helpful, but those are the parts to really emphasize.